Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. Gwili Sui, I've known for many, many years. He's, uh, he's a dedicated, committed author. And, and what I mean by that is he really has given his life and career over to the written word. And there's not many of us who can honestly say that mm. hand on heart. So I give Gwili tremendous credit for that. And Marie, very keen to have her on the show because... I'm not going to name names, but I've spoken to many, or not many, that's unfair, a few authors in the past who have been quite dismissive of, of illustrators and cover artists. In fact, I remember one publisher slash author saying to me, Neil, you know if you're self-published, you'd make a lot more money and you could just get any artist <laughs> and pay her a couple of hundred bucks <laughs> to do your cover. And then seems, you have seems kind of naive, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and then you don't have to worry about royalties for the illustrator uh, or this, that, and the other. And then all the money after that goes to you. It's that kind of attitude that will kill publishing. Right. You know, to me, uh, every cover artist and illustrator I've ever worked with, and I'm so glad Marie used the word. It's a collaboration. It's it's As Elton. It it's Elton John and Bernie Taupin. You know, it is a genuine, creative, artistic collaboration. Yeah. There's always a little bit of pushback from either side because it's your baby. Yeah. The written word is my baby and the, the visual element is, is the illustrator's baby. So there's always a little bit of backwards and forwards, which is expected. But you reach – it's not even a compromise, as, as Marie pointed out. You reach a creative collaboration. And I actually enjoy the process of working with artists and I thoroughly – Respect their craft, as you have to. Yeah. And, and Neil, we are going to mention the fact that your book was one of the, one of the books uh, that was released through Ethos Books. And kudos to Ethos for releasing those six titles for free. Especially anyone, now. Anyone can get them online and, and have these three different views. And, and your view as well was, a, uh, I won't say controversial, but not a view that's often discussed about uh, raffles. No, my book is called, the clue is in the title, my book is called Why Our Great Leader Was Not So Great and Not Much of a Leader. <laughs> you know, subtitle, notes on Stanford raffles. Obviously, Singaporeans know I wrote a note series of books in the past about Singapore. And I was always fascinated, uh, Glenn, about Stanford raffles. What I'm still extraordinarily proud of, you know, you look back at our younger selves, and when I read for, for an audio book recently, when I read back my first book, which I hadn't, read since I wrote it and I published it in 2000, 2001, is that I had this tremendous anti-imperial zeal, hmm. which I still have because as a working class kid coming from a housing estate in London, imperial figures and aristocrats meant nothing to me. Right. You know, they, they, they meant less than nothing to me. So I found it fascinating that when I arrived in Singapore, fresh-faced and naive in 1996, Every street man and his dog was named after Raffles. You know, like, who is this guy? What has he done? Yeah. And to give a very good analogy and comparison that I put in, my, in the story is that the prime minister at that time, when Raffles landed in Singapore in 1819, January 1819, was a guy called Robert Banks Jenkinson. And I'm going to take guy on a limb here. You've never heard of him. I've never heard of him. You've never heard of him, right? That man was Britain's longest-serving serving British prime minister in the 19th century. He was more commonly known as Lord Liverpool, mm. but still you probably haven't heard of him. And all he's got named after him, to my knowledge, I checked in the UK, is the famous Liverpool Street uh, train station. Mm. That's named after Lord Liverpool. The longest-serving you know, prime minister in the 19th century. Raffles has a station, a museum, <laughs> a school, a street... A, 
half of Singapore has got Raffles' name on it. <laughs> what was he essentially? He was an employee for the British East India Company mm. and he loved animals. You know, he co-founded London Zoo. So even back then, way before I became a woke, anti-imperial, <laughs> anti-empire liberal that I am today, I found this slight obsession, really. Quite odd, yeah. It is odd yeah. in Raffles. And now you bring it back to our woke 20th cent- 21st century climate where many former colonies are quite rightly, let's be fair, particularly in countries like South Africa and India and other places, Australia, less so, are disassociating themselves from their so-called white, and I'm putting in inverted commas, founders, mm. because they wasn't founded. There was native people already right. there, right? right? Whereas Singapore has, for the longest part, until very recently, arguably until the bicentennial, embraced their Raffles heritage. And that's what I got into the book. Um, there, there were, to, to, to finish that point, there were two very fascinating reasons why the Raffles legacy, the myth, whatever you want to call it, persists to this day. Why he's the man in so many textbooks and mm. he has not just one, he has two statues and, and so on and so on. Mm. The best thing that Raffles ever did for Singapore and the British Empire, Glenn, was die. <laughs> right? People are already choking on their coffee. Yeah. How dare he, sacred cow. All across Singapore, coffee has been spit yeah, across the, the, dining room tables. The best contribution <laughs> Raffles ever made to modern development of the empire in Singapore was die. Right? Because he did something extraordinarily well. He married very, very well. Uh-uh. Uh, he married um, a lady. Uh, I mean, he was like the Kardashians of the day, basically. Uh, he married Sophia Hull, who became mm. uh, Lady Raffles, obviously. And she was very prominent in London's high society. Now, when he died, <clears throat> she wrote this very one-sided, romantic, almost mythological interpretation of the great Raffles. And Mm. this biography was a massive seller Mm. in the 1820s and 30s. Now, being a proud... She she was his best publicist at the point. Oh, very much so. So he moved in the right circles. He he had the good connections. He was the Kardashians of political circles, if you like. Once he died, this biography was the talk of the town in British uh, Empire London circles. Why? Because when he died in the mid-1820s, as you move into the late 1820s, 1830s, Chartism, which I'm very proud of, was the world's first genuine working class movement Hmm. was taking off in the UK, i.e. in the British Empire. Because never mind what was going on in the colonies, working class people in the UK were suffering Hmm. as industrialization took its toll, right? Mm -hmm. People were, they were dying. You know, this is the the world of Dickens and and, and Oliver Twist and Hmm. factories and chimney sweeps and so on. So you're starting to get the birth of working class movements in the UK, lower middle class working movements. You're starting to get the development of what we call now pamphleteers. You know, the printing presses were allowing, we wouldn't consider it radical today, but it was certainly radical material then to being spread around saying, we want workers' rights, we want this, we want that. What better to have this now dead uh, imperialist almost reinvented as benevolent, the lover of colonial people, the supporter and champion of indigenous working peoples. Look what he did with the Raffles Town Plan in Singapore. Look what he did for the Chinese and the Indians and the Eurasians and the Malays. He was so benign. He was so benevolent. So that helped to propagate. It was one example of how it helped propagate this idea that Britain, Britain was the benevolent empire. You know, that was one thing. The second thing was 
When the PAP came into power in 1959, then we move into 1965 independence, Singapore needs to show that it's still open to the world. What better way than to retain? And, and I'm not saying anything uh, radical here. Lee Kuan Yew has said this publicly. It's in mm. his books. He wanted the because some people call for the raffle statues to be knocked down after independence. Mm. No, we have to show we still have British forces here. In the early days, they needed the British military. They were still here, I think, till 1972, but mm. certainly until the 1970s. Mm. We have to show the world that we are still open for business, that it's business as usual just because we're independent, that the old, the old colonial ties, the old boy network, the old connections to banking and petroleum and whatever, whatever, still go on. It's still business as usual. Mm. So we're going to keep our raffle statues and our Victoria Theatre and our Padang and our Singapore Cricket Club it's as you were. New, new, new government, self-governing, uh, you know, new PAP in, in office and so on. It's still business as usual. And what better than that benevolent leader <laughs> with his arms folded in front of the river to show you mm. it, as you were. Mm. So he was fabulous for both the British Empire and a fledgling independent Singapore government that needed overseas international investment once he was dead. Mm. <laughs> so, that, so it was those kinds of things that I talk about in the book. Uh, just giving raffles a different slant, you know, looking at him from a different way. Yeah. Apart from the fact that he's the most important thing he ever did was pull off the most outrageous drug deal we've ever seen <laughs> because Singapore's birth was illegal. You know, he installed uh, Tonku Long as Sultan Hussein Mohammed Shah of Johor. And then on the February the 16th, which we glad, which in textbooks is written quite one-dimensionally, but, you know, February the 6th, 1819, let's be honest, an unconstitutional ceremony was held by a representative of the British East India Company, Raffles, and a political puppet, which he had installed, mm. with the gifts of weapons and opium. Mm. That's an episode of The Wire. That's an episode <laughs> of Narcos. That is Game of Thrones meets Narcos. That is a drug deal. That is an illegal drug deal. So that's, I mean, the founding of Singapore, historically, uh, with evidence to prove it, was basically an illegal drug deal that should be a 10-part miniseries <laughs> on HBO. So let's not over-romanticise this, you know, this benevolent... You can almost see him at the bow of his ship, you know, with his telescope, yeah. you know, spotting Singapore and St. John's Island from the great yonder. It wasn't like that at all. It mm. wasn't like that at all. So it's well, just and, and interesting to he, present a different slant. And the fact that he spent virtually no time here. Anyway, no, right? It was wow. Farquhar. Farquhar was the one that really kind of put things in in order and in, into motion here. That's exactly right. After, as I think what... Um, uh, uh, Raffles was in uh, Batavia, right? In, Raffles, in, in uh, Indonesia somewhere. Right? Raffles has spent less time in Singapore yeah. than my mother-in-law. Yeah. And he left <laughs> and he, he, he handed, it's absolutely true, he handed it over to William Farquhar. Yeah. And Farquhar did a fantastic job. I mean, uh, he um, worked with local businesses. He set up trade. Yeah, he recognized the he, local needs he, that were needed. He worked in, on a smaller budget yeah. than Raffles had in Ben Coolen. Ben Coolen had uh, when Raffles was in Ben Coolen, Raffles had a bigger staff than than Farquhar had in Singapore. Even though Singapore was a much bigger territory, the Dutch hadn't entirely gone away. There was always the threat of the Dutch coming back in and having another go at taking over Singapore. He basically left Farquhar to take over uh, an island that was always vulnerable to the Dutch, had fewer forces to maintain security. 
from which he helped set up a thriving entrepot in Singapore. Farquhar did this, established wonderful working relations with the local communities and helped uh, local businesses flourish. So much so that when Farquhar left, this has been well documented, Mm. there was a big party for him. They gave him farewell gifts, which are now in the National Museum, Singapore. You can see them. Raffles got nothing, nada, (laughs) zilts, on your bike, clear off, go. Nobody cared. And he behaved as this really bitchy, hormonal teenager, (laughs) Raffles, because he started sending letters to their boss, Lord Hastings, right? guy called Lord Hastings saying, oh, Farquhar, he's making a mess of it in Singapore. Oh, I've got to go back and clean it all up. If I don't go back and clean it up, it's going to be an absolute mess. There's opium dens everywhere and there's cockfighting and all of this. And he's giving licenses for gambling dens and opium sellers and cockfighting all of which wasn't true. Mm. Farquhar didn't have the authority. He'd have to get Raffles' clearance for this stuff anyway. Uh, so he, told all, he sent all these bitchy letters to Hastings because he didn't like the fact that Farquhar was becoming really popular in Singapore, mm. was doing great work, had developed wonderful relations with the local communities. And, but Farquhar back in high society, uh, sorry, Raffles in high society was going back and telling everybody about his baby, you know, his Singapore baby. But it was Farquhar doing all the work. But the best case, the most fascinating case that you will not see in textbooks is Raffles the Pimp. (laughs) Raffles the Pimp. Uh, Been well documented in various books. It's now in mine. He had a good friend who uh, was called Alexander Hare, the resident of Ban... I can never say this correctly. Banjamasin, which is now Borneo, the resident of Borneo, who was essentially running... Borneo, like Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now or the famous Joseph Conrad. It was Heart of Darkness. Mm. It was run like that. He had gone crazy, this Alexander Hare. In 1813, Raffles announced that my friend Alexander Hare, he called him my friend, is running an enlightened administration in Borneo, on the rivers of Borneo, right? Here's the truth. Raffles recruited women for him. People who would be, they were removed from the temptation of crime. He basically took innocent paupers Mm. and sent them to Alexander Hare in Borneo to run this Kurtz-like heart of darkness harem where this white man had basically gone crazy along Mm. in the forests of Borneo, had hundreds of women around him that Raffles helped recruit. Raffles himself gave the green light to put these women from poor backgrounds, natives, indigenous people, on the ships and sent them to Alexander Hare, the governor of Borneo, to satisfy his all sorts of terrible fetishes and so on. It was like, you almost expect Mm, Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando. Think of Marlon Brando at the end of Apocalypse Now. That was Alexander Hare. And, and, And also Raffles kept slaves during this period at a time when yeah. Slavery, the Slavery Act had already come into play in the UK, and slavery had been abolished. These, these various points, as you mentioned, have been documented and 